you're listening to the Manifesto Press Podcast. You're listening to the Manifesto Press Podcast. Welcome to Manifesto Press uh, Podcasts. Um, Today we've got Nigel Flanagan, who's the author of our latest uh, book. I'll introduce you to him in a minute. Um, Just a few words about Manifesto Press. It's it's over a decade old now and was set up originally to provide a service for the labour movement. Um, Lots of people wanted things published, but they didn't have the design skills, publishing experience and the rest of it. And so what Manifesto did was set up a service in which we got as People who are prepared to provide these services for the labour movement, um, usually at cost price or sometimes free. And we've had now something like 40 titles published, some on their own account, some in response to requests from trade unions, some labour history stories which got a good response from trade unionists. And we've worked very closely with a range of people from the RMT, the Conley Association, the Venezuelan Embassy. We did four books with the Communist Party for their centenary in uh, 2020. And we continue to uh, provide this service. One thing we're doing at the moment is a new new, uh, series of books, uh, work really, life and trade unions and the idea of this is to provide a response to the rising tide of labour militancy which is breaking got a 20-30 year um, fallow period in the working class movement in Britain and Nigel's book uh, is uh, the first in this series really. Um, We published two others just after we published a cartoon by Andy Vine with a commentary by the literary critic Jenny Farrell on um, Robert Tressel's The Ragged Trousers of Philanthropist, just, just taking the great wage trick from that and illustrating it as a cartoon, immensely popular. And uh, Nigel's book fits neatly into that and has been a runaway success. So we're on a third printing now. So. Nigel, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, thanks, Nick. Um, I'm uh, well. I'm a long-standing activist and uh, organizer inside the trade union movement. I was a lay activist inside Unison for nearly twenty years. Then a member of staff with Unison. Uh, then for seven years, I went to work in Switzerland for Unique Global Union um, on organizing campaigns all around the world. Uh, and now recently I'm back in the UK working as an organiser inside the movement in the Northwest again. What struck me reading your book was um, how you were concerned both with structural questions in the trade union movement, but also the, the human question. And one of the things that occurred to me, looking back on my own experience in the trade union, union movement, and particularly your experience in Unison, is really, what do you think, What's the future for the trade union movement? Is it in specialist unions or in general unions? I think, I mean, this is a debate that's going on at the moment because um, the experience of activists and organisers is on the one hand, 
these super unions, unions like Unite and Unison, which are really the result of uh, ongoing mergers of, of previously big, powerful unions, quite often the experience of trying to organise um, inside those unions it can be negative because it can be over-bureaucratic, there's an administrative drag in trying to get things done, and the union becomes concerned with general issues and, and in somehow loses touch, in some sense, with workplaces. So I, I understand that sense of frustration. And then on the other hand, we have the some of the smaller unions that are, are trying to exist, particularly in the uh, Greater London area, and we get the opposite problems, that they don't have the resources to shift into strategic or decisive organising campaigns. And I suppose really uh, what I've concluded from that is actually that debate, although it's, um, it is important, it's not the most important question about the effectiveness of unions. The most important question about the effectiveness of trade unions is the extent to which there is rank and file leadership and control of its strategy of its resources and of its democracy. I worked for a long time in PCS, which, which it struck me, and it went through four mergers in order to emerge as a single trade union for one sector, really. And uh, what, what emerged from that was, I think it was a successful operation eventually, although a lot, a lot of tensions and struggles. But it raised the question of what's the basis of unity between low-paid workers and higher-paid workers, the upper stratum, if you like, people who are paid more and obviously exercise more responsibility within a capitalist system. Yeah, I, I think some, to some extent this produces a kind of false sort of picture that trade unionism is only about the so-called strong helping the weak and therefore that, you know, there are somehow a privileged group of workers who have power and resources and they're just simply there to help the less organised, less powerful uh, groups of workers, but actually trade unionism goes way, way beyond that. And and it's not a case of saying the strong help the weak. It's a case of saying all workers united are much more powerful. And uh, rather than dividing us in that way, what the trade union is trying to do is bring us all together in the sense that it's a movement for the strong and for the weak. And our collective action, our joint action, is what is really, really important in this situation. And I, I think as long as we keep that really basic sort of uh, tradition of solidarity and unity at the heart of what we're trying to do, that overcomes the argument about, um, you know, the strong and the weak, maybe the privileged and the less privileged. That's really a false argument for us. We're about bringing all workers together. So I'd always answer that question with the traditional answer, uh, the traditional answer from our own history of, uh, of solidarity and unity. And that is what's best for both groups of workers. You've put a great deal of emphasis on rank, rank and file control, which raises the direct question, do you think all union officials should be elected? Uh, no, I don't, actually. I mean, I think that, um, again, sometimes that's the solution that's posed uh, by some rank and file activists, but I, I think it's a cul-de-sac because there are roles inside the movement where we need specialists, where we need people with high-level skills and training and so forth, and and, and, you know, to try and have them elected on a regular basis might be more disruptive than is actually worth, worth it. But the real question is the extent to which the rank and file and the members control their union. And that is not necessarily facilitated by having everybody up for election. What is more important is where are the decisions are made 
And the people who make those decisions, are they accountable to the rank and file and to the members? And that's the effort that we've got to put in, is to making sure that the structures are accountable, that the leadership are elected and accountable, and that therefore the question of who gets elected and who doesn't get elected, although it's part of that debate, it's not a kind of broad brush, this is the solution. It creates a false situation to see it in that way. Better to see that the General Secretary and the National Executive are elected, that the members are taking part in the democratic elections, and that those people are accountable to the rank and file leadership and to the lay uh, membership. And that's more important than whether or not uh, certain people in certain posts are always going to be up for re-election. Good point. Um, I mean, what's unique about your experience is the, the range of settings in which you've operated. And uh, I was particularly impressed with your account of organising in third world countries. And uh, that immediately raises the question, uh, what do you think third world unions can teach us? I think they can teach us a, a great deal. And I think that... Um, the problem is at the moment is that the assumption is that we can teach them a great deal, which uh, in my experience is actually mostly the wrong way around. What we do find is trade unions, they're not operating in some kind of dusty, scruffy kind of third world environment as sort of pictured in the minds of the West. They're often an, um, operating in cities like Nairobi and Casablanca, which are sophisticated cities with very advanced economies. And that the challenges that those trade unions face there are exactly the same challenges that we're facing, for example, in Liverpool or Manchester or London or Berlin or wherever, anywhere across Europe. The difference often is the extent to which that the trade unions are not tied up in the paraphernalia of social democracy, of um, you know, sort of joint partnership notions, of the the idea that the interests of the company can always um, supersede the interests of the class of the general movement. And I think because those unions are in many cases facing more, uh, more let's be honest, quite violent and oppressive uh, systems, they tend to, re uh, tend to rely on the basics. And their basics are the resources and their organising efforts are concentrated on building power. And that focus on building power without the employment of hundreds of organisers, without all the uh, various councils and joint partnership committees that they would be uh, asked to attend in, in, in the European Union, for example, that simplicity is something that we could definitely learn from. And, and just one example I want to use, Nick, is only last year, uh, sorry, two years ago now, the Indian trade unions organised the biggest general strike in the history of the world. Over 250 million workers were on strike in India. Now, given what we know about the Indian political system and the government, that's quite a remarkable achievement. But we don't get people flooding to India to speak to comrades in India and say, how did you organise that? What was the impact? What can we learn from what you did? And I think that illustrates more than anything how things are the wrong way around. It's part of the colonial mindset that still exists out there that somehow we're the ones who can teach them Actually, they're the ones who can teach us. Well, what you've done there, of course, is answered my next question, which is what we can, what we can teach them. I want to move, move over to a contemporary issue now, which you can probably throw some light on. Given the latest revelations about the uh, international 
trade union movement and the corruption um, scandal in the European Parliament, which has involved the European TUC and the international TUC and the rest of it. Do you think that these international structures are inevitably corrupt? You know, that is, it's a very important question at the moment, not just because of what's happened inside the ITUC, but generally. And it comes back to what we were just discussing previously about what is the role of these global trade unions? I don't think that it's inevitable that the global trade unions are corrupt, but the way they are organised and operate at the moment leaves them vulnerable to corruption and temptation in the sense that if you take the fact that most of the global trade unions are funded and organised from Western Europe and the United States, and their relationships are fundamentally with the global employers who are mostly from Western Europe and the United States. And there's kind of a partnership relationship that sometimes spills over and develops into kind of safeguarding the status quo. So the trade unions that are adopting a, a quite militant and political stance in different parts of the world can sometimes find it difficult to get the, um, the backing, the support and the, and the real sort of uh, solidarity of some of the global trade unions and are much more able to do that directly to trade union movements in their own in their own country. So I wouldn't say that they are more liable to corruption than any trade union uh, na nationally organised, but there's definitely uh, a, a, a possibility there that this corruption has extended. So if we take a if we take a company like G4S, for example, a British global security company which has relationships with countries all over the world and contracts and not always good relationships. So for example, they were providing security in Israeli jails that were being used to imprison Palestinian children. And yet G4S can legitimately bash themselves as being an accepted good partner by the ITUC and by Uni Global Union. And it gives them a kind of cover and it gives them a kind of credibility, if you like, in certain quarters that um, perhaps is not justifiable. So that whole notion of partnership that we see as a problem at a national level is also a similar problem at global level. Just, just to change uh, direction again, um, who's your organising hero? Yeah, well, I find this a tricky question, you know, Nick, because I'm not really in favour of heroes or gurus as such. But I have to be honest and say the one person who, um, you know, I, I, for all the criticism, legitimate criticisms that could be made of him, um, and I, I had the privilege of meeting him, is Jack Jones. Jack Jones, I thought, was a great example of somebody who was genuinely committed to rank and file organising who, you know, as, a, as an activist uh, and then as a member of staff, always had the same aim, to get people in the union, to build up density, to build up power, and to get the rank and file to exercise that power on behalf of its members. And he became a victim of that in the end, which I think is probably uh, the greatest tribute to him, that he accepted that fully on the chin. Um, so Jack Jones is somebody that I, I do admire, and I'm always looking to see if there are any other Jack Joneses around, and so far, not many. But that kind of philosophy of rank-and-file power, creating it, building it, and using it, I think he exemplified that uh, more than most. I think you're right about Jack Jones. I mean, he was uh, a genuine working-class hero in the sense that he, he fought in Spain, 
He was a member of the International Brigade. He came back to Britain in a period of um, post-war reconstruction with the Labour government and maintained a fraternal if critical attitude to the Labour government. I mean, my best memory of, of him is um, having a drink in the Soviet embassy once, <laughs> in which he, um, he held a glass of whiskey to his lips and in the whole of a two-hour section at the Soviet embassy, not a drop of it passed his lips. <laughs> so remarkable self-discipline, proletarian yeah. discipline. I, I, I love the story that when he retired as the General Secretary of the Transport and General Workers' Union, he was given a £10,000 cheque and he immediately donated it to the pensioners' organisation, went on to become the organiser for the pensioners and refused to go to the House of Lords. And that, tremendous. Just to go back to your experiences in working in the developing world, I was interested particularly in your take on social partnership in developed capitalist countries, but do you think a social partnership has got a role in the, in the developing world? Well, it, it, it depends really on who the partnership is with and what the terms are. Obviously, I know you'll understand that, Nick. And, uh, and what we see is many, many really bad examples of so-called social partnership. Uh, with some good examples of social partnership, but I suppose in general terms, what I would say is that the pitfalls of social partnership are there, uh, as they are in the West, as they are in the United States, and, and are potentially a strength of weakness for the trade union movement. If the social partnership is about putting national or company interests before the interests of the workforce, we know that that can be, uh, 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 that, that can be doomed to failure because the employer or the government will always rely on the... Um, on the fact that the national and employer interests will be able to trump, so to speak, I hate to use that word, the, um, the needs of the workforce. And so therefore, what we find is that most of the trade union movement in, in, in the you know, continent of Africa, for example, will use social partnership as a means of getting their foot in the door. And I think that that's legitimate, that they may enter into alliances with some companies in order to try and unionize a sector that is uh, particularly difficult to organise. And in my own experience of that was the security sector and the cleaning sector. So I think partnership is not, ne it's not necessarily a philosophy for trade unions, but it is a strategic option in certain circumstances. And some trade unions have used that. So for example, the ANC uh, and COSATU have worked through a very, very difficult period in trying to maintain a partnership in the uh, reorganization of the South African economy and the building of a, a, a democratic movement there. And that is what I would call an example of a, a legitimate social partnership. The trade unions coming together with a progressive government uh, and some companies in order to improve the, uh, the society in which they live. Conversely, there are a lot of very, very bad examples of uh, so-called social partnership, which are to do with privatisation, exploitation, and the dominance of uh, global markets by Western uh, economies. And you only have to look at things like diamonds, um, cocoa, and, um, and copper, and iron, and gold to see how that works. It rather brings up sharply the, the example you gave of the general strike in India. I mean, that, that's taken place in a context in which India 
has now replaced Britain as I think is the fifth largest economy in the world. Um, and of course, millions of trade unionists in India belong not to the International Confederation of Free Trade Unions and its sort of Cold War successors, but to the um, class struggle World Federation of Trade Unions, um, which organises mostly in the third world, formerly in the socialist countries, and is committed, if you like, to a, a more intransigent um, relationship with the employers than the trade unions, mostly in the developed capitalist countries. So I really wanted to ask you the question, do you think the WFTU and the ICTU can cooperate, or is it uh, it, it, are the differences irreconcilable? I think they have to cooperate. I think that they can and that they should. You know, if we look, if we take the example of Amazon, so Amazon is a global company that's spreading all over the world, and, and not just in its own right, but every global company that wants to succeed wants to be Amazon. And Amazon is truly global and is extremely anti-trade union. And what that inevitably means is that it will be seeking to break the power of trade unions in many, many different parts of the world. And therefore, I think it's um, really important that the two global union federations come together about Amazon and start to deal with Amazon in purely trade union terms. The difficulty will arise, of course, if the, if the ITUC and Uni Global and others insist that the solution is to win some kind of neutrality and partnership with Amazon whereas our comrades in the uh, International Federation will be seeking to curtail the power of Amazon. Well, that will become a difficulty, but actually, at the moment, where we, where we stand just now, uh, it would be quite a nice difficulty to have, which would be to decide how we finally curb the power of Amazon. At the moment, we have to get organised in Amazon, and we have to be able to do it in every part of the world that Amazon operates not just in Western Europe and the United States. When Amazon breaks into big global markets like Brazil and Mexico, parts of Africa, uh, etc., in, in Southeast Asia, uh, especially India, we want to be linked together and organizing against that expansion. Um, and I think it's incumbent on the ITUC to recognize that they cannot just, they cannot just insist that the only way of doing this is through a very, very flimsy legal framework, a kind of global recognition agreement that just puts a badge on the on the company and so-called legal claims in East, uh, Western Europe or wherever. It has to be done by organised power. And organised power means confrontation and taking them on. And we have to be able to do that. Thanks very much, Nigel. Your, your final point, I think, is given extra emphasis by what happened in, uh, in relation to the uh, World Cup in Qatar and the way in which um, the frankly feudal labour relations situation in Qatar was legitimised by a kind of fake endorsement by uh, the ITUC. Um, thanks very much, Nigel. Uh, can I just say to uh, our listeners and viewers that Nigel is available to do uh, promotional meetings with the book up and down the country. It's been, it's been very successful and... Uh, I think we're looking forward to actually a fourth printing of it sooner or later because the thing is flying off the shelves and trade union branches actually buying it in bulk for their education classes. Um, can I just 
direct people's attention to Manifesto's website, uh, really newly reconstructed, and it, in addition to the potential in Britain for people to buy books, the softback books we publish, the physical object, we've also introduced a new facility to download EPUBs, which means that we can break through the price barrier that the international postal system imposes on uh, small um, publishers and people can download almost all of our texts for a reduced price so we're aiming to get across to a global audience and we're entering into various partnerships with our uh, colleagues and comrades around the world. Among the things that the new website uh, promotes is um, Manifesto's new line in apparel. So can I just give you an example of this uh, latest <laughs> garment? It's in a variety of sizes, uh, available both for middle-aged and elderly and overweight trade unionists, and also for slim, listen, younger trade unionists who are gracing our picket lines in their thousands. Thanks very much. Let's see, uh, and, and look forward to our next um, podcast, which will be on Doc Rich's book, Mark's Work in the 21st Century, which is in our Work, Class and Union series. Thanks very much. <laughs>